Good morning. Um, I have a couple announcements that I want to share with you before we pray and have our message. Um, the first one is for hand-to-hand. -hand. I know we've been talking about that a lot, and you guys have done so much with food and signing up for things, um, but we need a little bit more. Um, we really, really, really need two delivery people, and it would be once a month on a Thursday morning from 10 to 11, um, lifting totes, putting them in your vehicle, um, and then bringing them to the schools. Um, and we also need more packers October 19th um, here at, I think that's this, this, this week already. October is flying by. Um, so it's this week, and if you guys could sign up to do that, that'd be awesome, or show up. Um, packing's super easy, and we're actually going to show you how easy it is on November 13th. Um, we're going to set up food in the chapel on a Sunday morning. So after church, we're going to move the cookies, so you guys have to go this way. Um, and just, if you can stay for 10 minutes or a half hour, um, kids can help, and it'll be all set up to show you how easy and simple packing is and maybe kind of stir in you um, to do more or to do something for hand-to-hand. -hand. Um, trunk or treat is next week, and I know weather can change, but right now it looks like it's going to be 68 and sunny, which is incredible. Um, we can wear costumes without coats, which is rare in Michigan. Um, we have 12 trunks. I'd love at least eight more. Um, we have a police car coming, um, which I'm excited about, and we're doing hot dogs. Um, chambers are going to do hot dogs on the grill, so if anybody wants to join them, we want to do hot dogs, water, and chips, kind of at the end, um, and more candy. Um, our women's retreat is coming up um, November 6 and 7. I'd love for you to be there. Um, I think we have four people from Harbor Life and four from Walker. We have room for 20 ladies, so if you haven't signed up, um, you can see me or sign up. If finances are an issue, because it is $150, please don't let that hold you back. Talk to me, and we will help you with that. And lastly, um, we have committed to doing Next Step Stories for the next year. Um, Brent kicked us off last week, and normally we would do it in this middle space, which is sometimes kind of a that weird transition between worship and a message, and how do you have something heartfelt? And so we thought for the next year, we want to commit to sharing the next steps, things that we're doing. It can be something really small that you're taking, maybe volunteering or um, doing something for hand-to-hand, -hand, or it can be something bigger that God is stirring inside you. But we would love, love, love to hear your stories, and I feel like it will connect us as a community and help us know each other better and celebrate the things that God is doing in our lives. So we will do ours today toward the end. Um, but I wondered if you guys would pray with me, and we can start. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we look outside, and we just cannot help but be in awe of who you are and how much you love us. Lord, the trees just display your majesty and your glory and um, just take our breath away. Father, I pray this morning that um, we step into the challenge that you have for us and we step into the invitation. Lord, let us lay down ourselves and our own thoughts and ideas and just open our hearts to your word and what you have for us. In your precious name, amen. I don't know what we're going to use for an introduction once Matthew's over, but I'm sure we'll come up with something. But you've heard us say it over and over and over. We have been working through the book of Matthew this year. And it's really given us an in-depth look on who Jesus is, 
how he lived in the world that he lived and who he is now and how he's inviting us to live in the world that we live. So this mini-series, we have been looking at power and authority, how it can be used for good, but how often it is not. Sometimes it's not even used for good by us. So beginning in Matthew 21, time slows way down. The first 20 chapters of Matthew are the first three years of Jesus' ministry. And the last eight focus mainly on the last week of his life before his crucifixion. So we started this series with Jesus riding through Jerusalem on a donkey as a king. But he was not the kind of king that, Jesus, that the people were expecting. And it made us ask the question, what kind of Jesus are we expecting? Then we talked about Jesus being brokenhearted and angry over what was happening in the temple. How the poor and the marginalized people were being exploited. And how Jesus righteously flipped over some tables. And it made us ask the question of, who do we miss? Who aren't we seeing? Then Jesus told some parables that challenge us to look at how we shape our churches and why we gather. Do we gather to challenge each other with what God's word is saying to us? Or do we gather to just kind of tell each other what we want to hear? Do we gather to make this place safe and warm and welcoming to the rest of the world that the pe- to the people that the rest of the world have rejected? Do we want them to feel seen and loved? Or do we just want to make ourselves feel comfortable? And then last week, Brent talked about taxes and coins and giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. But in that teaching of Jesus, we ask the question. How do we live in the world in which we find ourselves living? Can we see ourselves and others as completely loved children of God? And today, we're going to focus on some of the most well-known words in Scripture. And it's sandwiched between marriage at the resurrection and whose son is the Messiah. So I encourage you to read those on your own, and then with your questions, ask Brent to take you out for coffee, because he's smarter than I am. But today, we're going to start with verse 34 of chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Sadducees and Pharisees. Who were those people? Both the Sadducees and the Pharisees would have described themselves as religious Jews. However, their commonalities end there. They had really different beliefs when it came to their religious understandings and their roles in society. The Sadducees were religious Jews who were high priests and nobles. Sadducees were wealthy, influential, powerful. The Sadducees did not believe in any scripture beyond the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. They believed that only the laws found in the Torah were to be followed. And then the Pharisees were primarily Jewish leaders who distinguished themselves um, with strict adherence to the written and oral Jewish laws. They were described as hypocritical and self-righteous in the gospel. Usually if you hear a story about a Pharisee, you immediately don't like them because of their attitude. 
The Pharisees recognized Jewish scriptures beyond the Torah as relevant to follow, like the law and the prophets. So though the Pharisees and the Sadducees differed greatly from each other, they both found Jesus to be a common threat. Together they resisted him, they challenged him, they tried to trick him, and they basically tried to discredit anything Jesus said and his invitation to live differently. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, who is the greatest commandment in the law? Here we read that a guy steps forward to test Jesus. This man was well-versed in the Hebrew scriptures, an expert of the law, the Torah. He stepped forward to test Jesus, not to really ask him a question. He didn't truly care about the answer. He was hoping Jesus was going to make a mistake and look foolish. So he asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? The Jewish law contained 613 laws. 613 laws, and every single one was meant to be kept. While they didn't act like it, the Pharisees knew that it wasn't possible to keep every single law. So they debated amongst themselves as to which one could be filled and then fulfill the law. They just, which one was the best one? Some believed that keeping the Sabbath was the most important. Some believed that keeping animal sacrifices was the most important. Others chose a different law to be the one. That doesn't sound anything like our world today, right? Nobody argues about whose beliefs are more important, right? No one today uses their power and authority to argue their view or make their point. That's not true. We all do, don't we? That's why this matters. I feel like the words that Jesus uses to answer the question are among the most beautiful and important words ever spoken. And today, I want to explore them in depth because they matter. They mattered then, and they matter now. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, all 613 of them, hang on these two commandments. While all of this is beautiful and matters and is a really ideal way to live, practically, what does it mean? How can we live it out? How can we walk this out in our lives? Jesus was recorded having said these words in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus was citing the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy. The Shema prayer is one of the most beautiful, famous prayers in the Bible. It was a daily prayer for ancient Israelites, and it's still recited by Jewish people today, in the morning and in the evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. I wonder if Jesus was feeling frustrated or grieved 
that even though almost everyone who had been questioning him, trying to trick him, knew these words by heart. They said them every single day, twice a day. But they weren't living them. So here's a little bit of the context around the story today. Basically, it's all the sermons in this series. Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He entered Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. He entered the temple and had driven out all those there who were buying and selling goods. He healed the blind and the lame at the temple who came to him. And then this next day of the Holy Week, he returned to the temple to teach. And there, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees were trying to trick him. They were trying to trap him, asking him these trick questions. Remember, both of these groups saw Jesus as a threat in getting of the way of their political and their religious goals. If they could get Jesus to say something heretical, they might be able to sway the current public opinion. So first the Pharisees sent a group of their disciples and some Herodians who were followers of King Herod to ask Jesus about taxes to Caesar. But Jesus wasn't tricked, and he called them out. Then that same day, the Sadducees came to ask him about marriage and the resurrected life. The example they gave was a woman who was married seven times. Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Jesus tells them that they do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Then, like the first group, they leave. Finally, the Pharisees try again by getting an expert of the law to ask Jesus which commandment is the greatest. Which is the best one? Which is the most important one? Because if Jesus chose any one of those 613 commandments above the others, they knew they could trap him. No wonder Jesus was grieved. They were missing it. And it makes me wonder, what are we missing? In Luke, we find a similar telling of the story. Again, an expert in the law tests him by saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look a little bit deeper as to what that is. The NIV Study Bible tells us that Luke uses a fourfold description, heart, soul, strength, and mind, instead of the threefold description from the Shema. Because the Greek words for heart and mind translate the full spectrum of the meaning of the Hebrew word for heart. So that makes sense. The Old Testament, which the Shema is from, was written in um, Hebrew, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. The Hebrew word for love is ahab, and it means to have affection for, to desire, delight in, or be fond of. A tenderness of affection, a strong emotional attachment for, and, is, and a desire to be in the presence of the object of love. The Greek word is agape, which is to have a preference for, to regard the welfare of. It is to take pleasure in, to prize it above other things, to be willing to abandon it or to do without, to be unwilling to abandon it or to do without, to welcome with desire, to long for. We diminish the true meaning of love when we view, when we view it simply as an emotion or a feeling. 
And therefore, it can be subject to change, right? If it's a feeling based on a current circumstance. Love is so much more than that. It's a decision of the will to act in light of a deep abiding concern and a deep abiding affection for one another. When the Bible places loving God in the context of a command, it becomes the galvanizing force, the strength, for not only how we feel about God, our heart, but it inspires our thoughts about him, our mind, and it stimulates our desires for him, which come from our soul. Loving God should motivate every decision we make and then empower us to live out our lives living out of love. Our heart is the center of our physical and our spiritual life. It encompasses our passions, our desires, our affections. According to the Vines Dictionary, the word heart came to stand for a man's entire mental and moral activity, both the rational and the emotional elements. It includes emotions and reason and will. Heart and soul are different words, but they represent the inner immaterial part of man as separate from his body. The soul is literally the breath of life which God breathed into man to make him a living being. Our mind is the faculty of our understanding which enables us to imagine and think and reason. And our strength is the ability, our force, or power that we have to exert in loving God. Each of these words, heart, soul, mind, and strength, can be explored as to how we love God. But I think the collective meaning is the greater lesson. We are not to love God with only parts of ourselves, but we are to measure every thought, every emotion, every feeling, word, action, in light of our desire to please and honor him. We are to pursue our love for him in every single aspect of our daily life with all that we are. We love God with all our heart when we love him exclusively, him and him alone. We love God with our soul when we find our satisfaction in him more than any other person or thing. We love God with all our mind when we make the conscious decision to step into that invitation to obey him. We love God with all of our strength when we persevere under every trial. Listen to those words from Deuteronomy again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Loving God matters. It's kingdom work. We love God with all of us, all that we are. 
We share it with our kids. We talk about it. We live it out with everything that's in us. Loving God becomes who we are. What if loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is to seek the kingdom of God above all else? Seek it, and you will find it. Seek it, and you will love God more and more. Seek it, and your perspective for change will be better. Seek it, and daily you will receive what you need for that moment, for that day. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is simply a response to him. For we love because he first loved us. And then Jesus said, love your neighbor. What does that look like? Let's read from Luke's gospel and find out. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the, Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus told this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. When the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus answered his question by challenging his heart and the general attitude of the day by telling this story. We know the term Good Samaritan so well that once we hear the word Samaritan, we know that a hero is going to arrive on the scene. But for Jesus' audience, a Samaritan was one of the most despised outcasts you could even imagine. It's hard to come up with a contemporary analogy, but a modern-day Samaritan would be somebody that made your blood boil, your stomach turn, like a bad taste in your mouth, somebody you just couldn't really stand. In Jesus' day, there was division between various people groups. Again, like today, right? Extreme animosity and hatred existed between the Jews and the Samaritans because of historical and religious differences. 
So Jesus tells the story of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's the only parable that Jesus tells with a specific geographic location. And the reason why is because the road to Jericho was notoriously unsafe. A person walking from Jerusalem to Jericho would be entering a barren, treacherous terrain. The trip between Jerusalem and Jericho was about 18 miles. And the majority of those 18 miles would be in desert-like conditions, as you can see in this picture. So given the isolated terrain, the long stretches of empty road bordered by rocks and hills, people on this road were really easy targets for robbers who would have found ample hiding places and escape routes along this, this road. So when Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, his listeners would have surely recognized the dangers that this journey posed. So in other words, Jesus' audience had no sympathy already for the man who was beaten, stripped, robbed, and left for dead. Because he was a fool to travel alone. That kind of thing happens when you traveled that road by yourself. You just wouldn't do it. So Jesus tells this story knowing that his audience would have contempt for this victim of the robbers. And he was seeking to replace that judgment with compassion. So left for dead, he lay battered and helpless on the side of the road. A priest saw him and deliberately walked by on the other side of the road. A little bit later, a Levite, who was also a holy man, walked by, and he responds the same way when he saw the dying man. Can you imagine being that man who was beaten, laying there, thinking help is on its way, and they walked by, and then thinking help is on its way, and that person walked by. Imagine the desperation and the fear and just the just that complete emptiness that he must have been feeling. So if you look at that picture again, you can see that anyone coming upon someone lying on the side of that road, it wouldn't have been easy to avoid them. In fact, there is some parts of this road that are so narrow that you would have to literally step over a person in order to pass by them. So the callousness of this priest and of this Levite stands out even more when you realize the geography of the land. These religious leaders knew and they memorized the law. They knew what Deuteronomy said about loving your neighbor, but they don't do it. Maybe they were running late. Maybe they were thinking about their to-do list. Maybe they were more concerned about remaining pure for the ritual tasks they had to carry out. But maybe they didn't act because they were busy casting judgment. Whatever the case was, there wasn't love in their actions. Nothing should come between showing concern for somebody left in a broken state. Whenever we think that's not my problem or they don't belong to me or we look the other way, when we step over something, when we carefully and intentionally avoid someone, what is that saying about our heart? 
Finally, the last character from the story, a Samaritan, a group of people in discord with the Jews. He sees the battered man, and he responds to care for him. When the two Jewish leaders saw the man in need and they deliberately avoided the situation, this Samaritan personified neighborliness in a humble and beautiful way. He showed mercy to someone with no regard to his background, his religion, or his potential benefits. It was a selfless, grace-filled, caring act. I think the meaning of Jesus' story really isn't who our neighbor is and who we're supposed to love. I think the issue is our hearts. If we say we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we aren't loving our neighbor, who are we? If we are getting caught up with whether or not we think they deserve love and our own judgments on that, who are we? What are we reflecting? I'm going to guess that we're not truly, fully living for the kingdom and loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are we willing to freely give love and mercy and compassion and kindness and patience and gentleness and grace? Or are we going to get caught up in who we should help and love, how often we're supposed to, and how much? What would it look like if we simply allowed the Holy Spirit to work through us, impacting a deepening love for God which will then naturally turn into a deepening love for others. What if we love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, all of our strength? What if we love because he first loved us? What does that love look like? Love is observant. One of the first steps of being a good neighbor and loving others is noticing them. The Samaritan first saw the hurting man, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. So granted, a beaten man on the side of the road seems like a scene that's hard not to notice. But I think Jesus here is encouraging us to and showing us the importance of noticing people. How can we notice and observe people in our life to really see them, to see their needs, to be prayerful and mindful of different people in our life? Love is compassionate. When the Samaritan saw the injured man, the Bible said he had compassion on him. And Jesus modeled compassion for us over and over and over in the Gospels. Matthew tells us earlier, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I've shared this before, but the word compassion in the Bible is one of my favorite words of all time. In the Greek, it means splognizomai, which means the inward parts, like our hearts and lungs, li our liver and kidneys. It literally means to have our bowels yearn, like to feel it in your gut. It's to have a deep empathy, to be moved with compassion. 
Where are times in your life where you have felt harassed or helpless? Who saw you and had that gut feeling of compassion to care for you? The story in the Good Samaritan here is it means splagnizomai also. The Good Samaritan moved toward the injured man and responded to his needs rather than simply feeling sorry for him. How can we be so moved by showing compassion to someone in need? Love is responsive. When the Samaritan saw the man, he responded immediately to help the man's needs. He bound his wounds using the resources he had on hand. Have you noticed someone in need in your community or your workplace or your neighborhood lately? How can we respond immediately to care for their needs? Love is healing. After the Samaritan binds the wounds of the man, he continues to care for him by taking him to an inn and looking after him. How have you healed because of the way someone saw you, saw your needs, and loved you? Who has experienced healing because you have taken time to love? Love is inopportune. Imagine trying to lift an injured man with no clothes on onto a donkey. This was not a convenient task, and it was probably pretty messy. Yet, he set the man on his donkey to take him to a place of safety. Loving people can be super messy. Loving people can be disruptive to our schedule or our plan or our to-do list. But how have you benefited from somebody going out of their way to love and care for you? Is there a way to show love to a neighbor even if it's inconvenient or not a good time. Love is costly. When the Samaritan tended to the victim's wounds, he gave his own resources, his time and his money. Verse 35 says, The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Those two denarii were about two days of wages. Some of our most valuable resources we have is our time and our money. Loving his neighbor not only costs the Samaritan financially, but his time as well. How are we able to use our time and resources that God has given us to bless others? Love is commitment. When the Samaritan left the inn, he told the innkeeper that he would pay for any other expenses when he returned. The Samaritan owed nothing to the victim, yet he promised to return and cover the cost of any extra care that he needed. When we love others, the Samaritan shows us to follow through in our care, even if we're not obligated to them. Is there somebody that you need to follow up with to show how much you care that who they are truly matters? Love is merciful. The story of the Good Samaritan is one of a man who showed great mercy to another. Mercy is meeting that need, not just seeing it. The Samaritan could have kept walking after he saw the man's need, but he felt that compassion. 
but he could have kept walking even after feeling that compassion. I know we can do the same thing. But he acted in that compassion, and he showed mercy. Mercy is compassion in action. What need of someone moves you to compassion? What act of mercy could accompany that feeling? And love is action. These kinds of actions matter. As Jesus told the story, he describes the Samaritan's actions with such a detailed description. Why? I wonder if it's because loving people well matters most of all. Jesus is describing what it means to be a neighbor, to act with compassion, to bring healing, to see someone's needs and respond, to love when it's not convenient, to love through our time and our resources, to love when it's messy, to be merciful as we love. After Jesus tells the story, he asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I want to be that someone. I want to answer that invitation to extend grace and compassion and mercy to my neighbor. I looked up what neighbor means here in the Bible. All it means is near. Will I allow my heart to be molded after God's heart? Will you? Will we trust him enough and love him enough to join his story? Will we trust him and love him enough to allow every aspect of our lives to be shaped and moved and molded by our love for him? Will we use that love to shape us and mold us and move us to love our neighbor, to love those that are near to us and love them well? What would our world be like if we lived with Jesus' words, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself, written on our hearts, woven into the fabric of who we are as a person, as a family, as a, as a church. I wonder what would happen if we stepped conscientiously choosing to live our lives with loving God with all of who we are, if we loved our neighbors, those people near us, the people we brush shoulders with, the people that we regularly interact with, the people in our homes, and if we love them well. If we follow Jesus, then we have to evaluate our commitment to loving God with all of who we are, thoughts, emotions, feelings, words, actions, to love him with our mind, soul, heart, and strength, to pursue our love for God in every aspect of daily life with all that we are and love our neighbor, freely giving love, mercy, compassion, patience, gentleness, and grace to those that are near us. Not just once in a while, not when it's convenient or when we feel like it, but wherever we are, however we can, 
loving God and loving our neighbor matters deeply. Will you join me in living our lives following this greatest commandment to love God with all of who we are, impressing it on our children, talking about it when we sit at home and when we walk along the road, and then to go and do likewise by loving our neighbors, whoever they are, by seeing them. To look past the obvious, their outer shell, their circumstances, to look in their eyes and to see their hearts and just love. Will you join me in asking God to give us his eyes to see his beloved creation as he does? Because I think how we love others is often how we love God. Will you pray with me? Father, we want to love you with all of who we are our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, and we want to love our neighbor. Father, we confess that we don't always step into that invitation or that command that you have for us. And Lord, we are sorry. God, we ask for your eyes to see people. God, give us a pure heart to love you with all that we are. We want to step into that invitation, Father. God, help us know how to impress it on the hearts of our children. Lord, how to talk about our love for you and live it out. Lord, with grace, with tenderness and humility. God, you're so good. Thank you for continuously wooing us to your heart. In your precious name, amen. Amen.